Well, good morning. Uh, just been playing around with the mic. Hopefully it sounds all right. Uh, that being said, um, just wanted to share some insights that I've come across from a couple of different sources. So I'm actually not that worried about uh, taking ideas from different areas. I've talked about this before that I started to get a little weirded out because some of these ideas that I thought were my own, my own original unique ideas, and as I found out that no, no, not, nothing that's, that's not special, there's nothing new about that. Um, but uh, thanks to uh, this, uh, three, three, these three books in a set by Austin Kleon, I was able to realize that's what art is, right? You emulate your idols, and in the failing to clone them, right, duplicate them, be them, in the failing to achieve, um, you know, this, this icon that you were trying to emulate, what you end up finding out is who you really are, right? So that being said, uh, um, nothing new under the sun, <laughs> and I stole that from, uh, from Austin Cleon, but I've been using it for years. I got it from uh, Northrop Fry. Oh, by the way, Austin Cleon, uh, he's also got a background in philosophy, so I wasn't surprised. Uh, but because I'm Canadian, I, I had a much stronger uh, emphasis uh, in my education placed on Northrop Fry, great Canadian who wrote about the Bible and its influence on literature. And that was a big part of it, right? Nothing new under the sun. I've mentioned this before, that uh, all, everything, all great literature, culture, ideas, art, is like a flowing stream. And uh, whatever came before gets laid down like silt on the bed of the river, the stream. And over time, uh, more content builds up, covers over the old content. But because we can't see it, doesn't mean it's not there, not present. Uh, the example I give is Jung, who... Uh, regularly quotes Nietzsche and uh, a few other uh, great scholars, which for me backs up my theory that uh, most of Jung's ideas uh, came from Nietzsche. Uh, maybe not just Nietzsche, there's some ideas that could have come from Proust. Uh, I mean, and Nietzsche was influenced by um, Plotinus and, um, uh, well, then his buddies who translated so many Indian philosophies, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, I have no doubt he, uh, he also knew uh, or was familiar with quite a bit of uh, Buddhist thought. Uh, therefore, Stoicism, Pyrrhonism, uh, you name it, right? A lot of these philosophies are just a rewording of the previous. Sorry, I apologize. Rambling on. But what I'm talking about here is Jung quoted the Bible when he said, um, we have faith, hope, love, and charity. He added that. Because in Corinthians, it is, um, uh, my faith is faith, hope, and love. But above all, love. Uh, that's the Bible quote. And I love that he added in um, charity, which shows an influence via Nietzsche and or uh, Buddhism and Vedanta, the, um, this idea that uh, dana, charity, uh, to oneself and others is, is absolutely important. To me, the real key is community, right? That's And he does talk about that. But I mean, I might have even considered adding that to his little line. But like I said, nothing new under the sun. But just to let you show how, just to show you how things don't really change that much. So about a hundred years ago in this um, collection of speeches that Jung gave, 
Um, he talked about some of these things that I've mentioned, right? Many times, obviously. Um, but one thing that he just mentioned uh, in his uh, psychotherapists or the clergy, which is the last speech that he gave um, in this collection of speeches uh, that have been uh, collected under the title uh, Modern Man in Search of His Soul. He's talking about what this modern man is. Uh, spoiler, modern man is someone who realizes that man is just something to go through, a path through, as Nietzsche said. The Ubermensch is the target we're meant to shoot for, like that moonshot goal that I mentioned from the Yijing. So when you're trying to cross a river, you set your target higher up on the blank bank than where you want to land because the current is going to carry you down. That's what the Ubermensch is. So the modern man is someone, as Jung said, standing at the edge of a void, uh, at an abyss, which he very clearly explains is this potentiality. That, as Nietzsche explained, if we can stop being pressured by dead people, traditions, uh, uh, if we can uh, start to find the meaning that quickens, so we start doing rituals and ceremonies for the value they're meant to provide. I've mentioned this before, that we've seen some of the most um, irreligious countries, according to stats, have the most meaning in just about everything they do. And what we're finding is they're doing much better than the countries who claim to be much more religious, yet don't apply the same meaning. And what I mean by that is in Japan, they'll say that they don't have a religion. In fact, they consider religion a bit toxic because they've had some bad experiences in the past. Yet, they place meaning in almost everything, right? They'll be born, uh, right, uh, Shinto ceremonies, their first year of life, they'll do another ceremony in Buddhist special festivals. I mean, arguably, we make fun of North America with all their special holidays, but have you looked to see how many holidays and rites and uh, national observances that uh, Japan has? Right? And compare that to North America, which I was shocked to read first that they say the number of irreligious people in North America is uh, it's higher in Canada, lower in America, but it still hovers around 20 to 25 percent ish. But those numbers include Buddhists and the indigenous. So right away, there's some something really disgusting right away. That's not irreligious. I mean, religion, the definition, again, you'd think these people would understand simple language, is the path that you follow with devotion and commitment. Sure, there is a definition of religion, meaning you believe in God, but yeah, that's not the majority of these definitions. And when we break these down, so what are we going to do? Are we going to throw in, uh, you know, a Shaivist, a Vedantin? Because they didn't. Are we going to throw them in with the irreligious? Because... They're fine with you not believing in a supreme being, right? They're just like Spinoza and Emerson and Whitman. If you want to believe that God is the power that makes flowers grow, so be it. But are we going to lump them in with the irreligious? Certainly not. So really, in North America, the number of irreligious people is really only about 11%, believe it or not, or less, actually, because I think amongst those is probably only a couple percent who are truly these apathetic atheists. These toxic atheists that Jung warned us about, these pseudo-moderns, or worse. Nietzsche warned us about these herd beasts. Uh, Jung also quotes Nietzsche 
multiple times talking about them being the herd. So what am I getting at here? I'm talking about community and truth and how long it takes for some of these truths to trickle down into broader society and why sometimes they may never trickle down to society. So I'll give you first the example that just recently is beginning to trickle down. So what was I talking about? So in Young's uh, books, he talks about, uh, just in passing, but he mentions it, uh, that um, it takes on average about 20 years for a new idea, new treatment, a new protocol. I mean, uh, the example might be the, the talking cure. It was originally developed, yeah, psychology, it was originally developed by a doctor by the name of um, Brower, Buer. Don't quote me on this, but this one doctor had a patient who actually trained him and explained um, that uh, talking about her, her um, psychosis, whatever you'd want to call it, her, her problem, she was quite extremely ill, uh, helped her. And so he considered this the talking cure. That uh, um, doctor, you call him maybe a proto-psychologist, uh, that doctor actually had a student. Uh, his name was Freud, Sigmund. Uh, and that doctor had a, a student as well by the name of uh, Salome. But that's a whole other story that I've told in another podcast. So this talking cure, which was actually taught to the doctor by the patient, yet we've forgotten how important this is, and I'll get to what I mean by that, took 20 years before it became commonplace because this was developed before Carl Jung was even a doctor. So it took many years. In fact, I've mentioned William James, and I wonder whether Carl Jung was, was ever lucky enough uh, to read some of William James' uh, William James's, um, philosophy, some of his science. He was um, a psychologist and a philosopher. Uh, he originally came up with this idea of pragmatism, which he's much more known for. But he himself realized that... Um, Pragmatism left something, something wanting, right? So he came up, was, uh, wasn't published to, uh, until after his death, uh, something called radical empiricism. And just again, nothing new under the sun. Radical empiricism is exactly what Nietzsche was calling for in Zarathustra. It's exactly what Carl Jung calls for, a meaning that quickens. It's called the happy fiction, or gaslighting yourself, like, like Albert Camus, uh, only... Camus had more balls, right? Because Albert Camus admitted, life is crazy. Life is absurd. Embrace it. Whereas Jung realizes most people can't just accept the fact that, uh, you know, life is not going to be exactly the way we want it to be. Like Carl Friston's free energy, right? Everything becomes a surprise because you're always expecting something different or you want something um, different. Instead of accepting whatever may come. That's Nietzsche's eternal return, the eternal recurrence, right? So Jung mentioned that it takes 20 years for these ideas to, to trickle, uh, matriculate, <laughs> well, trickle down into society. And he was talking about, like I said, psychology, right? It's 20 years after the talking cure was developed, then it started to become uh, well used, and then it was used incredibly heavily. I find it weird that uh, Freud's philosophy uh, uh, was so much more um, common than Jung's 
And I think it's because of this one problem. Because Freud took a very long time to admit that he had to consider the question of religion. Because religion is a synonym for meaning. Because religion is trust. And meaning is trust. And Freud didn't want to admit this. He truly felt, as a pragmatic doctor, that he knew everything, obviously. You know how doctors can be. But he forgot, and this is where we're in today, he forgot that there is something more. That every doctor is reminded on a regular basis. It's called placebo. In the human creature, you can heal with a sugar pill. Even if you know it's a sugar pill, if you are confident that it will heal. That's actually homeopathy. Homeopathy is purely placebo. It's considered a pseudoscience, but arguably it's gaslighting for your health. But if it works, I'm not saying homeopathy is good. It's absolutely terrible. Not my point. But what I'm getting at here is the hubris of a doctor to pretend like matter doesn't matter, right? Something more than us doesn't matter, yet uses placebo in their treatment every day, right? Because the example I usually use is uh, antidepressants or any of these mood-altering drugs. A uh, study just came out of SSRIs, and it showed that a big chunk of the healing from SSRIs might be chalked up to placebo. Right? And even before this study, doctors kind of already knew this. Because it took approximately two weeks for um, a mood drug to take effect. Approximately. It depends on the person. That's why. Some people it's quicker, some people it's a little longer. But doctors would regularly say six weeks or more. Why? Because say if you were the type of person who it takes two and a half weeks to work. Then at two weeks, you start to wonder, am I broken? Is it not working for me? You want to have confidence so long that it becomes a habit, becomes an affect. That you aren't wondering, right? But are confident. Same as religion. Religion, better translated as uh, the Sanskrit, right? I've mentioned this so many times and this is why. Shraddha is Sanskrit for faith, but what it really is, is confidence, uh, devotion, and uh, commitment to the path that you follow. So that's what these doctors should have realized, is without proof, your average person cannot delude themselves into believing something that every stitch of evidence tells them not to believe, right? So the example would be somebody who's having, um, you know, a depressive episode or, or there's, you know, whatever. I'll try to keep it simple here. So if you have depression, right, um, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Actually, now that I think of it, a better example would be chronic illness. Because as doctors, in, on average, it can be 10 years before you're diagnosed with a chronic illness. And during that time, they're trying to heal you with this, with that, with this, with that. And whether the doctor does it overtly or not, they almost always invariably make the patient feel 
like it's uh, psychosomatic or, you know, it's something they're doing wrong, but it's just normal human behavior, right? Because they're frustrated and they only know so much. But fast forward during those years of trying to get diagnosed. And the sad truth is, is your average patient starts to develop PTSD, starts to develop uh, confidence issues, anxiety, depression, worse maybe even, right? All because of not the disease anymore, but because of the treatments or the lack thereof. It's really quite tragic how we end up leaving a lot of people. And this, I know it seems like it's not related at all, but this is exactly what I'm talking about. When it takes 20 years for this information to make it to the mainstream, this is Carl Jung talking about medicine. And he was talking about 20 years to go from science and scholars down to the, the lay people. But I argue, fast forward 100 years, and I don't know what Jung would say about this, but doctors are guilty of this as well. Because I've given this as an example. Um, I've been trying to deal uh, with inflammation for years. And uh, quite a number of years ago, when my doctor said, that's it, we got nothing for you, he tried all the different drugs because he was trying to treat my anxiety um, uh, as a, a biological or a chemical issue. He didn't realize that trauma, he should, right? Because this is not a regular doctor. My doctor actually... Um, is also a psychologist and I might even be a psychiatrist. I can't remember exactly, but he did the rotations in the psychiatric hospital and all that jazz. He should be very well educated on this subject. But in the end, it was an inflammatory, an auto-inflammatory uh, based condition, which causes all the same symptoms of mood. But never mind taking eight and more years to be diagnosed, every doctor should know that that can cause anxiety and depression. So trying to mask the symptoms of anxiety and depression without trying to find the root, source, or cause of pre-existing conditions or what have you, that's why I argue it's so important for you to take ownership of your own healing. Because you can, you can drive that placebo, right? If you're the one who's in charge of your healing, you have much greater confidence in what you're doing. But more importantly, what would Young say if he mentioned how sad it was that it took 20 years for information that doctors knew to get to the, the broader public for them to understand? What would he say now as exampled when I mentioned to my doctor, I don't know how many years ago it was, but I mentioned my microbiome. And when I first mentioned my microbiome, he chuckled. <laughs> That's pseudoscience. <laughs> Right, I brought in, um, when I finally got diagnosed with my HS, uh, which is even another tragedy, because for years he treated me, and it wasn't until I had um, uh, what's called a sinus tract, so it was a six or eight inch long um, subcutaneous tract that had been um, leaking, bleeding, for uh, well over a year. Uh, in a very sensitive spot. And, and I really couldn't afford Band-Aids anymore because you can only imagine how many you'd go through, not to mention the sticky, it just destroys your skin. So I used bandanas. And it wasn't until um, I said, hey, this is, uh, you know, and I showed it to him that, that he gave me a referral. But what I didn't realize at the time, it wasn't because I showed him how bad it was and really kind of said, hey, what the, you know. It was 
because, follow me on how tragic this was. I had a softball-sized abscess uh, between my legs one time, and, and I just I couldn't live with it. I couldn't bear, bear it, so I went to the emergency room, hoping they could drain it. I don't take any uh, painkillers, so I wasn't there for any uh, pain pills. And uh, because it was on the side where um, I have trouble in my hips, when I have inflammation, I have uh, hip troubles. It, it makes it difficult for the hip to move, right? Uh, the doctor actually noticed me getting up on the table when they were inspecting the, the abscess, this big, uh, it's a pocket of sebum and blood that builds up from the inflammation. As they were inspecting that, he, the doctor noticed how bad my hip was. So not only did this doctor, because he, you know, once, as I said, I don't take any painkillers, but he could see how big it was. I'm pretty sure no other patient would have got to that point without any pain pills, refused pain pills, uh, and still be in that point. But what shocked him most, and he told me this, is that <laughs> I was in more pain and discomfort from my hip. But of course, not understanding how this stuff works, at the time, I didn't understand that it was related. I thought I had pulled something in my hip. But not only did he give me a consult to a dermatologist, but he also got me into x-rays and ultrasound because he thought it was so bad. Long story short, it was. It was just... Um, I guess essentially fibromyalgia. When I have a flare, inflammation, uh, my joints, sometimes certain joints, sometimes a lot of them, if not, <laughs> I won't say all, I can't know for sure, but you know what I mean. Sometimes it's one joint, like my hip, sometimes my hip and my toes, and sometimes it's my ankles and my knees and my hips, and it's all around. But this hip thing is really bad because you can't lift your leg. I can't even put on my socks because of... I can't, it's, it's almost like I can't lift the leg, right? So what I ended up realizing after the fact was the reason why my doctor got me a, um, what do you call it, uh, a referral to a dermatologist, because by the way, in Canada, it can take two years. I called around myself and they were telling me it'd be a year or two uh, because when I went to the hospital, he told me it was a skin disease the dermatologist said it's so fast that I didn't catch it, what the name of the disease was. But I did catch dermatologist, right, that's a skin disease. And the doctor that, that brought in the dermatologist explained to me what to do. He told me about taking a sitz bath, which is an Epsom salt bath. Um, but that was about all he knew about the disease. In fact, uh, the, the, the doctor that, that called in the dermatologist didn't even know how to pronounce hydradenitis uh, superativa because he mispronounced it. So I didn't even know what it was. I went home and I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And I can't quite remember whether I found it before I went to the doctor or not, like the name of the disease. But neither here nor there. So my doctor let me go nearly 10 years with this disease, telling me that it's all in my head, right? Uh, let me think it was uh, ingrown hairs or what have you. Um, get to the point where I am so sick Arguably, he kind of did it to me because uh, when I explained to my doctor that I had to give up all medicine and I went on a natural diet and I was eating cannabis, hemp seed oil and hemp seed initially because I couldn't afford you know, the cannabis and eventually I found some people that were kind enough to help me out because I was eating the live plant. Um, I explained this to him and obviously I was using the cannabis. Uh, I was smoking it at the time, but I realized uh, because of my disease, I realized I had to cut out the smoking. So I actually began vaporizing and 
when you're broke and, uh, you know, um, housebound, what do you do? Well, I lucked out. Uh, I was able uh, to put together a homemade uh, volcano, a vaporizer. So I took um, a ball, uh, what do you call them? Um, the little thing you put in a, in a, in a bong, it's, it's a bowl. Yeah, sorry, a bowl. Um, so I, I took a bowl and, and a down stem from, um, from, uh, from a rig, uh, uh, a water pipe. Uh, and I put that in uh, a turkey bag, an oven bag, elastic to the, uh, the down stem to the bag to keep it sealed in. And then I found a really good uh, old Milwaukee uh, heat gun with adjustable temperature, right? So you, uh, thankfully, uh, we have the interwebs. Uh, you look up and see at what temperature cannabis vaporizes. You're not destroying as many of the cannabinoids. Again, beggars can't be choosers. So when you only have so much medicine, you need to have it, uh, as much of it as possible. Smoking it, you only get like 70% of the cannabinoids, if that. Uh, vaporizing, you get something more on the lines of 90%. But as I was saying, what's actually coincidental, I actually had to stop working because the disease got so bad because I just couldn't. I mean, uh, I ruined a couple chairs because I had abscess bur burst at work and I'd have to go home uh, to take care of these things. And then I'd have uh, not just my coworkers, but the coworkers would encourage the customers to complain even though they knew. It was medical issues, but again, 10, 15 years ago, that was okay to discriminate against someone because of a disease. But what I was getting at is my disease exploded when my doctor told me, that's it, I don't know anything else I can do for you, so I stopped going to him for over a year or more. Um, because what would I go to him for? He said there was nothing for me, I wasn't taking any medicine, blah, blah, blah. He didn't support cannabis at the time, I forgot to mention that. But so finally, when I started to really start to see some differences, start to heal, I lost a hundred and some pounds. I was starting to feel better. I had really started to figure something out. Um, but I had to go back to the doctor now because every few years I have to renew my AZ license, uh, my, my um, um, Class A uh, commercial driver's license, I guess, in most other jurisdictions, right? I can drive just about anything with wheels. Well, I can drive just about anything uh, with wheels or floats, to be honest. Uh, misspent youth in northern Ontario. You learn to drive a lot of boats and trucks and snowmobiles, dirt bikes, and motorbikes, and quads and Argos. And I can drive just about everything that doesn't fly. I guess I'll say that, right? So I had to go back to keep my license because it's not cheap to get. It's not cheap to maintain. And once you lose it, you have to go right back through all the, the hubbub to get it back. So I don't want that to happen, obviously, because, again, of my disease. Can you understand this? Right During the, the lockdown, we were in the worst COVID lockdown. And our Ontario provincial government didn't even postpone our medicals. So this is the middle, well, I think it was, what, 2021, June. Uh, I had to go to the doctor. So... Again, remembering, I can only go about an hour without having to go to the bathroom and never mind being around things that might be contamination. I can't go out for too long because I can't really eat anywhere because pretty much everything's contaminated for me. In fact, in the last couple uh, months, I've realized that I have a severe allergy to food colorings. But uh, 
That's neither near here nor there. So it had been a year or more since I'd seen him, maybe even two years. You have to go in every five years for your driver's license. For renewal, you got to get a medical. And so, um, so I went in expecting he was going to be his usual dismissive gaslighting self, right? And so I really wasn't open with him at all. And, um, and, and I don't know what had changed. Uh, because when I came back in, um, he was a different man all of a sudden. Right? All of a sudden, uh, he understood, you know, the microbiome that was important. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I was trying to explain why my HS got so bad. So actually, he, um, he didn't support my cannabis. So before I stopped going to see him, he made me go a year without using cannabis. And he still didn't support me after I did that. So I went back on cannabis. I had to get back to being healthy because a year being off of the cannabis was rough. I, I had a really tough time. Um, and as I said, um, I showed him how important it was because not only did I do what he asked, I spent a year with uh, no cannabis, uh, and obviously that's no drugs whatsoever. I didn't, wasn't even taking um, uh, any sort of painkillers or, pain or anything like that. Um, but that made my HS just go bonkers. Just go bonkers. I, I'm sure it was a combination of him saying, um, there's nothing more we can do for you, but not realizing, like, dude, you were only ever trying to deal with my anxiety. You never even tried to heal my HS or, you know, anything else, let alone you should have understand. He knew my family history, so he should have known um, my history of trauma, never mind what he didn't know. But he did know of my brain injury when I was a kid. So he 100% should have known that inflammation is what I needed to fight because that's what was fighting my own painkillers and killing my own mood. But again, this is why we're here. This is why I'm here talking about this because again, write your story because it, it may become part of somebody's survival guide. And that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that someone doesn't have to go 20, 25. Okay. Well, my apologies for that. It seems that, uh, that uh, the software that I use uh, now has a limit on how long it will record. Uh, long story short, uh, I apologize. But uh, I, when I started the podcast, I had to go with an app that didn't require a lot of um, technical know-how. Um, I know about computers and all that sort of jazz, but um, because of my dyslexia, uh, I'm not so good, um, right? I have to spend a lot more time, and so I went, being lazy obviously, but also just to make it easier for me, uh, I went with something that was, you know, mostly, well, I went with uh, an app called Anchor, it's now owned by Spotify, didn't require me to have to figure out, you know, multiple apps. Uh, arguably, what I started doing was just recording voice notes and then uploading it to to uh, Anchor. Um, yeah. But uh, neither here nor there. So we'll get into it right uh, here. So what I was going to get at was actually neurodiversity, uh, where this idea comes from, what it is, uh, and actually how sad uh, the real truth of neurodiversity has become. So as I said, um, to tie these together, Carl Jung says that it takes 20 years uh, for scientific knowledge to trickle down to the mainstream, right? Idea to make, make its way to the public mind, right? 
1998, uh, a lady by the name of uh, Judy Singer, she's an Australian sociologist, she came up with this idea of neural diversity uh, to explain how we think. Right? But keep in mind that in 1998, he was talking about, she, my apologies, she was talking about uh, the idea that we don't all think the same. Remember, I've spoken about this before, the, the ridiculousness that uh, for decades we ran on the idea, the wrong idea, uh, the erroneous uh, hypothesis that some people listen uh, some people learn uh, by listening, some people learn by doing, some people learn by seeing. But in reality, fast forward to today, uh, for years they studied uh, about, you know, about this, right, to prove it. Uh, and, you know, they started to see that, well, you know, it depends. Some people have abilities here and some people have abilities there and but what really came down is when they started to look outside the box and they realized that it wasn't how you were learning, right? Because sure, you might have a disability, like in my case. Um, I learned a lot better by hearing than seeing because I can't trust my lying eyes. I'm dyslexic, right? It's a weird thing, though. I'll mention this as an example in a moment. It's not all negative, but that's where the mistake comes in. Because Jung says it takes 20 years and it's been over 20 years because Judy Singer wrote this book or coined the term neurodiversity in 1998 to explain how we think, right? She wanted to see uh, an improvement of, on how we integrate these people, how we help them, right? These are not disabilities. It's not a disease, but it's something we can train or overcome or adapt or improve. Certainly not everything, but when we admit that, that also means that certainly not everything is out of our control, right? Calling it social barriers versus a disease. Let's be honest. When you look at the word disease, nah, they've lost the meaning as well. Instead of considering it like uh, something you're stuck with, it's something you can fix, right? Because if you're in disease, you just have to get back into a state of ease. But what's funny is it took about 12 years for uh, an article to be written about this idea. So for about 12 years this idea was being bandied about within social uh, circles, possibly some psychology. Sociologist isn't the bleeding edge of psychology so likely she was mostly ignored. But again, don't quote me on that, I'm just guessing. In 2011 Harold Bloom wrote an article that was talking about um, how uh, unleashing the power of a different thinking brain, I believe, was the, uh, the byline or the subtitle of, uh, of whatever his article was. Right? But we're now 10, 11 years since that article. And it's only been in the last year or two or three that we've really been seeing uh, the increase in recognition of people with, uh, well, people of all types of uh, benefits and disabilities. But the argument 10 years ago was that one side considered it the disease, while the other a learned trait. 
And in the middle are advocates. And sadly, in this case, the only person that's actually neural uh, divergent in this story uh, argues for a blended approach. And I argue when money and ego are in the way, health and patience take a bad back seat. Because this advocate uh, by the name of Ari Nieman wanted a blended approach, right? This idea that, uh, sure, uh, autism, Asperger's might not be curable, but that doesn't mean we just institutionalize these people and turn our backs. Uh, because if we had begun, as I said, 20, 30 years ago, trying to learn, to ask the correct questions, learn how we can help these neurodivergent people um, manage their own symptoms and make their way in life. Fast forward to today, we'd have 20 years of experience on the far end of the spectrum that we might be able to apply. You know what I've been seeing is people with ADHD and dyslexia and other learning disabilities being lumped in with the neurodivergent. Now, I don't argue that many of us can um, share symptoms with uh, people on the spectrum. I just argue that it's like the movie The Accountant that I mentioned. Autism has become our touchstone for when it comes to these ideas. Because as I said, Judy Singer told us this in 1998, that there is no typical way to be a human. And then in 2011, Harold Bloom wrote an article saying how much of a superpower. And there's a number of books written about how dyslexia and autism, I mean, look at uh, Elon Musk today. We've gone from some people making fun of him for being autistic to some people actually considering it the reason why he's such an outside-of-the-box thinker and why he might be so brilliant and it might be a connection. It used to be when I was young, they separated your disability from your intelligence. It would be, oh, you have a learning disability, but you're so smart. Now, oh, you have a disability. Well, that's probably why you... That's what the advocate, the only neurodiverse person, wanted us to understand. Sure, things are bad, maybe difficult, but unless we try, we'll never know what we can manage or um, minimize, right? So I argue... Well, actually, the reason why I mention this is because that article from 10 years ago was just quoted this weekend to me by a retired teacher. Uh, I was in a stationery store, of all things, uh, which makes sense, though, because, uh, you know, stationery, pens, art, very attractive to the, the neurodiverse neural crowd. And the owner's husband, neurodiverse, and the teacher that was there mentioned, because uh, we were talking about mindfulness as being the real way to engage children, and she loved that because, yeah, I mean, how many years did it take for that to trickle down into the education system? Because this teacher's retired, and I bet you she only just learned about this recently. Right? So I argue it's not that the neurodivergent are less than, like it was originally. I also argue that it's not that the neurodivergent are better than the neurotypical, right? Sometimes seen as more than 
No. I argue that neurodivergent is neurotypical. Because I argue there is only one way to think, and that's your way. One way to learn, that's your way. And now, here we are, 20 years after this term was coined, but we're arguing about terms instead of realizing that, geez, once again, we've just let the pendulum swing the opposite way. And are we really going to encourage it to right itself? Because we want to find the balance. But really, the real tragedy here is how can we find a balance when we still don't understand exactly how we cognize an understanding of cognition and consciousness, never mind how divergent people think. Right? I argue that we need to reevaluate our education, not the entire system, but these ideas. Have we been missing the point? I mean, I make a joke that um, I didn't get tested with my learning disability till late. Uh, but even then, I had a year or two left in high school, and they offered me some help because of my learning disability. So that help entailed uh, more time on a test. It was supposed to entail uh, teachers reading the question out to me, but that never happened. Isn't that funny? No, there was never a teacher that was available in these special rooms for the disabled. Uh, because the teacher was either busy playing on their whatever, you know, doing homework or catching up on stuff or writing in their diary or not even in the room, or they were trying to deal with the behavioral problems, uh, the students that they had uh, put in the same room with us. So wait a minute, let's look this back here. So 25 or so 30 years ago, if you did get tested with a learning disability, we did understand that you just learned different and we needed to help you. Focus. So how would we help you focus? By putting you in a room with a bunch of noisy behavior problems. And I'm not being mean. We should have learned, uh, at least here in Canada, a number of the kids that I ended up having to sit in class with to take tests uh, were what would be considered... Um, you know, like fetal alcohol syndrome at, this, at the time, you know, these people who um, had these uh, this string of behaviors and symptoms, so they chalked it up to, oh, the parents must have been drinking when they were born. When in reality, there is no simple solution to these things. In reality, uh, those kids just had a harder home life than others, and sure, because of how they... Uh, uh, you know, we're taking care of either young, prenatal, postnatal. I recommend you read Gaber Mate, a great Canadian doctor who does clearly explain the danger of pre- and postnatal trauma and how that can carry on for the rest of a child's life. The parent does not need to be a drinker. In fact, the other parent can be a drinker. And you can get a child to have the same symptoms as uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. So what did I end up having to do? I couldn't take a test in that room. I wasn't getting the help I was supposed to, sure. But the extra time? No. No, I, I couldn't sit in there. Three hours in that room with all the noise was worse than the 40 minutes in the classroom. 
right? Now, being so hard up to express myself, I just stopped taking advantage of those benefits. But luckily, I changed high schools to up my marks. Because I actually went my first uh, three, four years, I dropped out for a while. My first three, four years of high school, I went to a French immersion high school. Um, and the academic standards were much higher. Uh, in fact, uh, that high school I went to, I found out um, when you applied to college and university, they would add 10 percentile points uh, to your grades uh, to make it balance with some of the other average schools in the province. So arguably, it was one of the most difficult high schools in the province. And I still, I still got there. I did up my marks quite a bit going to another high school because, yes, this other high school was quite a bit easier. But what was interesting is um, not being in those classrooms, not being treated as different, allowed me to excel. Um, so when their original goal was to help me learn better, they actually made it harder for me. And it wasn't until I went to another school and was just treated like every other student that I was able to truly begin to learn. And, you know, I'm not saying begin to learn, but the, the difference was significant, right? So I argue in the beginning, instead of treating and dealing and managing, we actually did things worse. We were much worse. We were harder uh, on these students. And I argue, are we missing the point? Right? It's not who we miss, but what. But what. We need to stop concentrating on oh, who falls you know, through the cracks. Well, I hate to tell you, for every one that you notice falling through the cracks, there's probably a dozen more that are just keeping it together enough that you can't tell that they need help. And they're either too proud or unable to, or for whatever reason, they're not going to reach out for help because they know they're going to be stigmatized or the promised benefits will never materialize. I mean, the, the greatest example and, and the greatest tragedy, in my opinion, was um, all of these guidance counselors told me that, oh, we got this great program for you. Um, they went from trying to make me drop out in grade 11 because of my dys uh, dyslexia diagnosis. And they're like, oh, you can't learn. You'd best go learn a trade. And, and I told them, no, no, no. I had to fight. I had to have my parents come. I had to fight to stay in school, literally, because of my diagnosis. Think about how messed up that is. But I stayed and I got all my OACs and excelled in both official languages. I've only just recently realized that that's a very, very small percentage of our population. But no, I didn't allow them to do that to me. But I did. Because then they promised me all sorts of help when I went to college. They said they'd get me a laptop and they'd get me this voice-to-text uh, um, software and you know, the, the school would help me out and give me extra time and I'd be able to go someplace quiet because that's when I explained I'm like, no, I don't want any of those special rooms. I said, that just makes it harder. They're like, oh, no, no, they'll give you a nice quiet room. You can go and blah, blah, blah. Lo and behold, I go to the school. Um, besides having to spend the first two weeks fighting 
to get the, uh, the funding to be able to pay for my tuition and my books. Uh, after that, I had to fight with the, uh, the resource department because they promised me all this stuff. So in the end, what did I get? I got a tape recorder with no tapes, no battery pack, and no wall plug. That's it. That's all I got. I never got access to textbooks uh, in audio, as I was promised. I didn't get the voice to text. I didn't get anyone reading out my exams. I got absolutely no help. But here's where the tragedy gets worse. My first year, again, because I was told I was going to be getting all these benefits, I signed up for what's called a 150% course loan. See, I wanted to take a three-year college course at my local college because local, I could hopefully save a little money. I could go to two years of college, get a three-year degree, which would allow me to skip two years of a university. And hopefully by then, right, things would be different. Right, learning to learn and all, all these stories that I was told. So my first year, thankfully, I didn't have to work. This is the first time in years, because uh, I'd actually started working when I was 14, um, yeah, uh, on the phone. I did uh, telephone sales, because again, all I could do was talk. I could barely write for people to even decipher. Um, so I, uh, what do you call it, um, canvassed for the Kidney Foundation when I was 14, 15, 16. Uh, then I took up selling golf packages when I was around 15. Uh, locally sold golf packages over the phone. That did really well, believe it or not. People like to buy golf packages. Uh, then when I was uh, 16, I helped uh, put myself through um, high school and uh, start to save for college uh, by commuting every day. So uh, my last year of high school, when I said I, I transferred over to another city, I, um, I took uh, a 50% course load so that I could work uh, full time. And I'm not exaggerating. So I was a little bit older than that, actually. I got the, the years wrong. Um, what did I do? Oh, geez, that's why. So no, um, at 16, I started working at a place called The Wine Rack, um, at which sold wine. And it was great for me because it was all talking. That's what you do. You tell people about wine and, you know. So I was perfect for the job, and I loved it. I got to talk to people all day long. Uh, so I did that till I was about, uh, about 18. No, I started when I was 18. Forget the time frame here. Gosh, this is 30 years ago. I apologize. But I had been working from 14. I'd had a half dozen jobs. Uh, I even worked summers as a carpenter. Uh, worked with my buddy as a locksmith. Uh, actually apprenticed as a locksmith for a couple of years. Technically, a journeyman locksmith, but there is no official program for that. So that didn't go anywhere. There is no Red Seal um, certification for locksmiths in Canada. But for high school, uh, my last year, trying to get ready for college, I had to make some real money. I couldn't just work in a mall hourly. So what I did is I took this job, and I think it was about 18. might have been a little bit younger, but I did it for a number of years because I didn't graduate uh, high school until I was 19. Because, again, I dropped out for a year uh, at the first school I went to, and then the second school, I actually had to do it for for, uh, like I said, to get uh, the courses at 50% course load, it took me much longer. So I actually was working full-time. I was, and don't kill me for this, I was selling vacuums. And uh, I wasn't selling the vacuum. Well, I guess it technically was, but I was the office manager. 
So I did the calling. I trained people how to call. And remember, I'm 18, 19 years old. I'm training people how to call, how to talk to people on the phone, because I've been doing it for years. Um, and I liked this particular vacuum because it cleaned with water. So I liked that it was environmental. It wasn't using filters. I liked that it pulled a lot more of the dust particles out of the air with me, with my extreme allergies. All this stuff sang to me. Um, but I used to have to commute because once for the first year or so, it was great for North Bay because I didn't have to move, right? Because we sold around North Bay. But once we burnt out North Bay and we were sending Sturgeon Falls and then as they went further and further away from North Bay, as we burnt up all of the appointments that we could get, I used to have to commute, right? So my boss would pick me up from school and we'd commute. It was usually an hour or so out of town, depending on the town we were going to. And uh, we'd work. Right, I'd, we'd get there uh, around one or so, uh, and uh, work till around eight or nine, depending on how many appointments we had, and then we'd go home, and it'd start all over again. I'd go to school from eight to eleven or so, eight to eleven, eleven thirty, can't remember, and he'd pick me up at lunch, and we'd go down south, and I'd stay on the weekends. It was kind of fun though, right? Some of the salesmen would rotate and stay with us. Uh, we had a few hotel rooms. Uh, they'd stay on the weekend, and I'd stay to get appointments. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. Right? And so, fast forward, and I can't even remember what I was saying. Hmm. Hey, my apologies. I remember where I was going with that. So, long story short, if we were to, and this is how I put it down, right? So, um, I was talking about college, right? So I went to college uh, with all these promises. But if we were to have all of these aids available for all the students, all of the students, then we could raise all boats. I argue that imagine if I were to have been able to have complete what I wanted to do. Imagine if I had gotten the help I had wanted to do. In fact, the lady I was speaking to uh, this past weekend, her husband actually is quite honest about this, that he knows himself how lucky he was, that he should have been lumped in just like me and had no opportunity. But because he was given opportunity and because he was giving the benefit, he must have been in some school. This is all it would have taken. He was probably in one school with one um, uh, teacher that had uh, specialty uh, instruction or training when it comes to these disabilities and maybe read... Uh, an article. I mean, it might have been around the same time. It might have been a little younger than me. It might have been a little bit older, but he might have been reading some of the research that informed uh, Julie Singer, or Judy Singer, right? Because she didn't just come up with that on her own. So he uh, fully admits that he got a PhD and there's successful, wealthy uh, individuals, uh, families with children that are successful, uh, wealthy individuals that have gone on to university and education. Why? Because he was given that ability. So I argue we need to move towards a truth that neurodiversity is typical. Right? I guarantee you there's more neurodiverse than there are neurotypical. Right? We should just accept neurodiversity as normal and raise all boats, as I said, right? The typicals need little help, right? Since we have shaped the world to, to fit their needs and the way they think and learn and work. But if they do need help, 
They can get it either from the group, because we're endeavoring to make sure everyone gets lifted instead of, oh, sorry, you're divergent, so we're going to have to leave you behind. Right? They can get the help from the group and the instructors. Because, as I said, instead of having one teacher who is the supply teacher for the neurodivergent and the behavioral students, we should separate the behavioral from the neurodivergent because the behavioral, once they've learned how to manage their emotional regulation, probably need help with learning um, uh, some sort of developmental trauma or something like that. But more importantly, every teacher should understand this. In fact, for me, it was because of one teacher. I made it to uh, grade 11 in French immersion here in Canada. That means I spoke both official languages, passed the tests even. So here I am in a high school. I made it to grade 11. And if it wasn't for one teacher who noticed the extreme dichotomy between my spoken eloquence and my written eloquence, that she started to realize, wait a minute, I think he's dyslexic like me. And so she pushed to have me tested. I never got tested. And if she hadn't pushed, I never would have been tested. But as I said, I didn't get tested till grade 11, so it's too old under most, uh, um, what do you call it? But because they screwed up, I guess they felt guilty, or maybe they realized that, you know, they could have been liable for how much life they took from me. Um, I don't know why. But all of a sudden, they allowed me to go from general, because they told me I was stupid for the grade 9, uh, fine, fought them again in grade 10, but in grade 11, they made me go into general courses because they said, you're not smart enough uh, to go into regular. They even made me drop out of French immersion, believe it or not. That's when they tried to make me go into a trade. But thanks to this teacher, not only did she get me tested by a, an actual shrink uh, and the full test. I know there's some very basic tests, but it was a pretty in-depth test. And thankfully, I still have my test because I found out without that test... No one would believe me that I'm dyslexic. Not that anyone has believed anyways. But what ended up happening? She helped me realize what my problem was, but it took 20 years after that to realize that the trauma was also causing this disconnect between uh, who I am, how I think, how I learn, and, and all of this communication, um, all of the communication barriers. So it was the one teacher... One teacher. Why? Because she went through it herself. Because if she didn't have somebody when she was young to have discovered a diamond in the rough, but in reality, how many of these students go under the radar now? Because that was me 30 years ago when the classes were only 15, 20 people. What about now when we got classes that are 30 and 40 people or teachers that are so stressed and run off their feet that they don't even have time to learn their students' names, let alone pay attention? Or how about the fact that we've moved to computerized uh, testing and evaluation? That's not going to pick up uh, people with disabilities. And worse yet, kind of leaves the people with disabilities behind, doesn't it? Right? It's unbelievable uh, how we say that we're trying um, you know, to consider all, yet just about every move we tend to make kind of shows this lack of understanding where the true mistakes are, and where we truly need to be uh, uh, working, right? I mean, uh, in this day and age when we're going all digital, 
gosh, I argue that's leaving probably a good 30, 40% of the population behind. Because you don't, and see, this is the funny thing they've started talking about. They've started talking about this around the world too, dyslexia, not just autism. Because in England, and again, it's because of one person had to live with this and realizes how horrible it is. But in England, um, they're putting forward uh, legislation that is going to mandate that all students be tested for reading disabilities. They say dyslexia, but there's more to it than that. I use the term dyslexia because I'm so old. I was right, uh, diagnosed right at the time when they stopped calling it that. Because before that, my doctor explained to me that it was the group of different uh, disabilities, but neither here nor there. So fast forward to today. We're only going to be leaving more people behind. Different maybe, different people behind, but more. Because that's the state we're in. It's funny to bring it back around to philosophy, but this is what Nietzsche was writing about uh, in the 1880s. It's what Jung was writing about in the 1930s. It's what so many philosophers in the, uh, the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s even, wanted to deny. The truth that postmodernism was a reaction to modernism that left a lot of people behind, right? Modernism was a movement meant to raise all boats, right? It was to, to bring, you know, equity, equality, whatever you'd want to call it, right? More opportunities for, for everyone. Postmodernism was a reaction to the fact that modernism left a lot of people behind. And rather than postmodernism actually um, vet the job they're doing or the potential uh, they could do, rather than vet whether they're making the same mistake, again, talk about hubris, to uh, start a movement because of a failure of another movement, but never once stopped to think maybe we're wrong. Right? That's your tetralemma again, right? But in reality, these, and I call them neo-postmodernists, because this is not the original postmodernist movement. The original postmodernist movement would be someone who truly thought they were trying to help everybody, right? They were really trying to help something. What we have now is these neo-postmodernists who want to stagnate society, who don't want us to evolve to where we need to go, because they're afraid. They're cowards. And what are they afraid of? Well, uh, in Bête Noire, in Bête Noire, they're afraid of a dark specter. They're, it's an existential crisis because it's not a real crisis, right? It's a self-created and sustained crisis because they're afraid of religion. They're afraid of faith. They're afraid of belief. They're afraid of trust. And they equate that to God and organized religion. And that's all cope. That's all trauma. But these philosophers don't realize that they're suffering from the same trauma that, you know, many of the vast population are suffering from. But rather than heal their trauma, they're trying to reinvent themselves. Right? So they took Nietzsche or Jung's psychology of the happy fiction 
but they're applying it without the Greek maximum. First, of know thyself, but more importantly, that our first, final, and arguably only goal is to improve ourselves and the system, each other, to maintain, not the status quo, but to maintain the stability and the perpetuity or perpetuation. My apologies. That's what we're here for. As I mentioned before, that skills are experience with focus. Because that's what Jung talked about. Jung didn't talk about create your own and whatever you want. No. He said it has to be the meaning that quickens. Why would it make your pulse quicken? Because it means something. Why does it mean something? Because it helps you. It betters you. It, it, it informs you. It helps others. It informs others. Or it will. That's the meaning that quickens. That's the happy fiction. That's the eternal return. That's accepting whatever may come as ordered. Treat triumph and disasters as imposters both. This is not a movement meant to stagnate our potential. It's, it's the movement that Jung prophesized in his book, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, when he said that we stand at the edge of an abyss. If, like Nietzsche said, that we can leave the baggage of expectations and traditions and, 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 uh, and neuro-traditional uh, thinking behind, and we can become brutal lions to tear down the institutions that don't serve us and others, to become the modern man to Jung or the child to Nietzsche, to recreate yourself, know thyself, to create is the meaning that Nietzsche pointed to. To Jung, it's simply meaning itself. Right? But they're afraid of where postmodernism was meant to move. It was meant to evolve into something called meta-modernism. That's what Jung was, was invoking. Not that we believe in theism. Not that we sign up to some particular religion. Again, I've said this, Jung was heavily influenced by Nietzsche. So, you're either with us or against us, is a failure. Immediately. So he wasn't asking for that. He very clearly expressed it. That our job is to appreciate what we do and why we do it. It's in, it's in being focused, in being present, that we're truly alive. I've mentioned this before. It's funny that uh, Carl Jung had an affinity for the Yi Jing because it's actually the foundation of the language itself. Never mind the philosophy that's in the Book of Change that he liked to consult daily. Carl Jung considered the Yi Jing, the Chinese Book of Change, and it considered an oracle, but for him, he saw it as um, a tool to access his intuition. That's how I express it. But to go one level deeper, 
it was his way to access the Zelle, the collective unconscious. That's S-E-E-L-E. -E -E. Pardon my German uh, pronunciation. He took that from uh, really old German, proto-German, uh, because it, of its meaning. Again, cannot recommend uh, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. It's all in there. He'll explain it for you. But he felt, just like William James, that there was another consciousness to the universe. Doesn't have to be, a, you know, a, a sky daddy. Doesn't have to be theism. Doesn't even have to be a system uh, predestined uh, with order. It can be entropy, as Albert Camus said. Right? Life is absurd, but just as Nietzsche said, the only trick is to embrace it. So for me, that's what I've come to realize. We used to teach our neurodiverse that, yo, no, you're less than because you can't learn the way you got to fix you, right? And spend how long telling the neurally, uh, neural uh, traditional that they were the ones, you're awesome, you think best. Fast forward to today, I said this in, uh, when we were having that discussion with the teacher. I said, imagine what we'd have today if we had started 20 or 30 years ago to realize that neurodiversity was much more common than we can ever imagine again. We're not asking the right questions. I don't think we ever were, and we're still not. So imagine if we had made room for these neurally divergent for the last 20 years. Imagine how many problems might have had a fix. Arguably, uh, Ben Franklin was an autodidact, right? Emerson. Neurally divergent. Whitman, certainly. Nietzsche, certainly. Jung, eh, I don't know. I certainly think he was empathetic. That would have allowed him uh, to understand the suffering of those uh, who were not neurotypical, even if he was neurotypical. Tesla. I mean, you can go through the line of these great inventors. Charles Sanders Pierce. Some of our greatest, Oscar Wilde, Da Vinci. I mean, Austin Kleon in his book highlights the, uh, how we hurt ourselves by believing that genius is a rare quality. Genius only seems like a rare quality because as Jung said, the majority of people walk around completely unconscious. So... Who's judging what is genius? I argue, like neurodiversity, genius is far more common than we realize. I argue that just about everybody has it within them to achieve genius. What they might not have in them is the ability to think, to cognate, to learn, to express themselves, to, to understand somebody else's idea. But... Here I sit, realizing that they don't teach logic in school anymore, right? They don't teach kids about poetry and philosophy, art, right? They don't even teach kids what science was for, at least when I went to school, right? Some of the art teachers explained how you don't have to love art for it to improve your life. I've mentioned this before, the... My favorite painting is the, a painting by uh, one of the masters in the group of seven. This is this group of Canadian painters. 
And believe it or not, it's, the painting is beautiful. It reminds me of, uh, you know, up north, right? It was painted in uh, Algonquin Park. Um, so a lot of the, uh, the scapes will be similar. But for me, it's the title of the piece um, is why it's my favorite. It's entitled uh, Terre Sauvage, which is French, and he was English. Doesn't make a lot of sense until you understand what Terre Sauvage means. If I were to say Savage Earth, doesn't have a lot of meaning behind it, does it? Right? That painting does look like it's a windswept tree. It's a tree that's been malformed by nature, by time, by elements, by challenge. But it still grows. It may not look like your typical uh, tree, but it is a tree. But terre sauvage in French can mean so many things. It can mean wild earth. It can mean untouched earth. It can mean divergent, right? savage. It was a term we once used for those that didn't think or feel or act the way we considered to be traditional. But I love Terre Sauvage because it is so many meanings. So many people get upset. I've heard this about books or movies. If the author or the director doesn't have an answer for what he meant, people get upset by that. I've never understood this. And I mean, these directors and these writers are being nice. Because if it were me, I'd be like, dude, what is wrong with you? Like, how boring would it be if there was only one ending to the story? How much more wondrous is it to be able to sit there after and wonder what may come? Right? I mean, that argues why so many of us fear the future. We, we argue about this in theory of time. Right? Why does the past seem so ordered, yet the future seems so chaotic, so scary? Well, it has to do with the same idea of the happy fiction. Same idea of um, the eternal return. Because of our past, uh, or it's even dramaturgy. I've mentioned this in another podcast. Uh, all the world is a stage and we're but players upon it, like Shakespeare. So like dramaturgy, our past is settled. Right? We've experienced it from our perception. There is multiple ways to perceive the past. The example I give is trauma. You wouldn't believe how many uh, traumatized children will spend their lifetime thinking what their experience was in the past, remembering this experience, only to find out eventually that, um, no, in reality, uh, their memory was failing uh, because of trauma, because of stress, because of narcissistic parents, you name it. These parents, these, these kids... Um, are living a fiction. Living a fiction. And that's literally the solution, believe it or not. Um, that's what Jung called for. He called for us to realize that the secret is dramaturgy, right? Remember, Jung wrote about um, the personas. So what he says is... Until you really know who you are, 
right? You put on a brave face. So when you're around, say, your sports buddies, right? You, uh, you have a certain way. Like, especially even if you're going to go out with your, your sports buddies, you'd be more likely to wear your ball cap. Now, if you hang around with your artsy friends, right? You'd probably be more apt to wear your, I don't know, your Ugg boots, whatever artsy people wear, right? And act differently, speak differently. I mean, these are these persona ideas. Persona. That's dramaturgy, right? Young really was trying to get across this idea, and I love this. It's, I can't, it, it's pretty much from, uh, from um, Austin Kleon's book, but he just, like he says, he's just stolen, and I use that term loosely, but he's stolen uh, this idea from philosophy, and he's reworded it in a modern sense, right? So he's just sharing the same truths that are resident in all the philosophy, but he's just making it a little more palatable, a little more, you know, timely. And that's why he says these things like, uh, uh, things like, uh, fake it till you make it. Uh, I was out this weekend, we were shoe shopping. And uh, we were just going up to the cash, and the two young gentlemen were talking about, you know, getting rich and making money and getting famous. And I said, you know, Current psychology and actual studies are pointing to the truth that uh, if you're guided by money, um, you're much less likely to be successful than if you um, are uh, pushed by passion. Like if you are creating something that you love, right? if you're producing something uh, for others, right? uh, if, if profit... And success are a byproduct, right? If you, uh, if you go out and achieve karma yoga, right? Action is the first, uh, first step. But if you go out and achieve, uh, then success and uh, what would you call it? Remuneration will be uh, separate. But what uh, I said, as I mentioned, just to give an example, it's it's Jung's persona. It's, uh, it's kind of flying in the face of idolatry, but at the same time flying in the face of fame. Let's give you an example. Me growing up, I had a number of different idols. There was no single idol. That seems to be a weird affect nowadays, that people idolize very specific people and, and very few of them. Like I had certain aspects from each persona that I idolized, right? Clint Eastwood for certain things and... You know, I like Conan, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger some, but it was mostly like I really enjoyed the movies and the stories, not so much the actor. I appreciate actors that can just be, um, like can just be part of the story, if you follow what I mean. Like what we used to consider, um, you know, part players. But for me, uh, one of the biggest resonating truth resonating truths from Austin Kleon's books was that you shouldn't be ashamed of trying to um, embody something you're not. He argues, and I love this because again, this is what Jung is getting at. If you endeavor to clone your idol, if you try to become a carbon copy of your idol, it's in the failing to do so 
that you will learn what is you. It's in the effort involved to try to shape yourself into something you're not that you will learn what it is that you've either honed yourself into or what you have the potential to become. This is what that uh, Delphic maxim was. It's at the heart of, of, of understanding the universe uh, lies in knowing thyself. Right? And that's where this joke comes from, because the more you come to know thyself, the more you come to know others, the more you come to know others, right, the less trouble you have. Right? Uh, L'enfer, c'est les autres. Um, is, uh, hell is others. And that is one thing he wasn't wrong about, because uh, arguably it is. But it's not that the others cause the hell. It's the fact that we self-create the hell because we either allow others in or we allow others greater impact or uh, influence or impingement. When in reality, the only thing that matters is thyself. And in knowing thyself, you can eliminate all chance of hell. So for me, that's, I guess, the takeaway here is uh, nothing new under the sun. Everything's been said. It seems the only difference is, is to truly sell a book nowadays is you have to provide insufficiency. You can't give them the whole process. Because if you give them the whole process, they'll be able to achieve it. And then why would they pay you? Wait a minute. That's not true. Why do we let people make us think that? And where we have, we have people running around trying to keep everything hidden from everyone. Read Austin Cleon's books because he is so right in this. Because I saw it a couple of years ago in the automotive industry. I met this guy who uh, went to prison. And when he got out of prison, he was looking for opportunities. And he found a Jetta Volkswagen dealer who would train him as long as he promised to work for him, blah, 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 right? So he did all that, and he enjoyed it. And in fact, again, you know, these hustlers, they tend to think outside of the box, the neurodivergent. Um, he started to get into side hustles. So he was doing uh, uh, tuning, right, for uh, Volkswagens and, and, uh, and Audis, right? And the, the more successful he got selling these tuning parts, the more people uh, asked for, obviously, free, but this is where it becomes counterintuitive. Uh, more and more people asked for free help. How do I do this? Show me how to do it. Show me how to do it. And the more he showed them how to do it for free, the more they wanted to pay him to do it. So Cleon was one of the first that made me realize that that observation I had was likely one of the most profound, uh, but I haven't heard it repeated since. So that's why I've been harping about him lately. Plus, he also convinced me that uh, I really do have to finish this book. So on that note, have a fabulous day.